Leviticus 12 from page 52. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary, until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation. And she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. This is the word of the Lord. I will never forget the births of each of our five children. Eden was a forceps birth. Mia was a natural birth, but with a lot of blood lost. Zai had some significant complications that required a medical team of about eight people for a good half hour or so. Austin was our first caesarean. And Theo had some complications with his lungs that required him to be taken upstairs for further observation and treatment. But despite their uniqueness, they all had at least one thing in common. Blood. This is the nature of one of the most incredible moments in any person's life. It's certainly an incredible moment for the person being born. But it is also for the parents and especially the mother. Ask any parent about the newborn baby that they hold in their hands and they're not going to tell you about the blood and the mess, at least not straight away. They'll simply say, isn't he or isn't she beautiful? Why then does Leviticus 12 portray the birth of a child as an unclean thing? We saw last week how chapters 11 to 15, you see on the slide of Leviticus, are all about laws that separate the unclean and the clean. 
a command that the Lord gave to Aaron and his sons as part of their responsibility as priests in Leviticus 10.10. They're to distinguish between the holy and the clean. Remember, these next uh, chapters 11 to 15 are all about what that looks like. It instructs the people of Israel on how they do that in various areas of life. And so we saw last week in chapter 11 how eating certain animals or touching their dead carcasses affect whether they are clean or not. And as I mentioned last week, being clean or unclean uh, was not about having dirt on you. I don't know, kids, last week, if you decided this week to come in from playing outside and saying to your parents, I'm unclean. No, because, I mean, yes, that would be true, but it's not the unclean that we're talking about here, is it? The unclean that is being referred to in these chapters is about a ceremonial state of uncleanness that makes it either, uh, if, if you're unclean, then it is impossible for you not to come before the Lord. Sorry, to come before the Lord. You are not to enter into the sanctuary or to touch any holy things. As we've talked about these last few weeks, it's important to remember that holiness and consecration to the Lord meant obedience to his commands. And those commands could apply to moral spheres of life. Do not lie, do not commit adultery, those kinds of things, or to certain areas of ceremonial religious life. And so in the ceremonial commandments, most of the actions that we see in them, they're not sinful actions in and of themselves. But because God commands them, then to disobey them is sin. So as we saw last week, because the food laws were part of the old covenant, in the old covenant with Israel that God made with them, he gave them this command then it was wrong, it was sinful for them to disobey that command. But because those commands are no longer part of the new covenant in Christ, then we're free to not obey them. That is why we can eat bacon or shellfish or vulture if you really want to. There's nothing inherently wrong with eating those animals, but because God commanded that the Israelites were not to eat them, it was therefore sin to do so. And so that's what we're seeing in these ceremonial laws. A person had to be careful not to engage in Israelite worship, being in an unclean state. Now, it's worth noting, I don't think I made this as clear last week, that to be unclean is not necessarily wrong. It's just that the worshiper usually had to be very careful not to touch holy things or, or, or whatever it is. They had to make sure that they were clean before doing so. Again, we saw that last week. It says in Leviticus 11, 27 to 28, whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening, and he who carries their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. So that's what they needed to do. Now, I'm sure there were plenty of reasons why an animal carcass had to be carried somewhere. If you walked up to the front of your tent and died, you can't you know, just leave it because you think, oh, I don't want to be unclean. You, know, you, you, you pick it up and you, you carry it away, and then you make sure you obey the regulations to make sure that you move from an unclean state to a clean state. So they weren't forbidden from doing those things. They just had to make sure they obeyed rightly. And so now in chapter 12, we read about how giving birth to a child makes the mother unclean. 
Now, it's important to note that, that throughout this chapter, it's not the child who is unclean in birth, but it is the mother. The children are not in any way to be seen as some kind of curse. They're not to be seen as, as some kind of bad or wrong thing. And sadly, our world today makes that mistake far too often, doesn't it? When a woman becomes pregnant at a time when she wasn't planning to be, then the new life in her womb is often viewed as a disruption to her plans. The child is viewed as a burden, something that is now going to make the lives of their parents less fulfilling, a hindrance to happiness. And sadly, pre-born lives are sacrificed on the altar of comfort and personal dreams. And don't get me wrong, there is no doubt that being a parent is hard. That having children may be the most difficult thing you ever do in life. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Who was that, Reuben? <laughs> but God never views the creation of new life in a negative light. Never. There is never a time that a baby being conceived, formed, and born is not a reason to rejoice. And this makes sense because God loves life. He is the source and the giver of all life. He told Adam and Eve to fill the earth and multiply. And Psalm 127, as we read earlier, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. That is always true. So no, Leviticus 12 is not saying that children are somehow unclean when they are born. And it is definitely not saying that they are bad news for the mother. And the emphasis on the purification of this chapter is all about the woman she is the one who is unclean and must be purified. But that then raises another question, more questions, doesn't it? Well, what makes her unclean? And if the birth of a newborn baby is such a great thing, why is she unclean? Well, the answer to the what and the why? Blood. Well, let's wade into the mess of this chapter and hear what the Lord has to say, starting at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. Right from the beginning of the chapter, we get a clue as to why a mother who has just given birth is unclean. It's in verse 2 there. It says, the, re the regulations, you see, here are the same as they are for her menstruation. Now, we haven't come across any laws about menstruation yet in Leviticus, but we will in chapter 15, and we'll talk about it more when we reach that chapter. I'm, I'm really excited about it. <laughs> I recognize that we have kids with us and some of you won't know what that means, menstruation. All you need to know about that word is that it involves blood and women. 
Okay, that's all you need to know. Now notice the connection between that and giving birth. Verse 2 says that she will be unclean seven days, just like at the time of her menstruation. In Leviticus 15, which we will come to, as I said, uh, the period of uncleanness, it says there, is also seven days. Hence the comparison. It's, it's, he's saying it's the same uh, regulation that governs those things. And so there are two very obvious points of connection between these two events in a woman's life and in her body. Firstly, they are both to do with the parts of a woman's body that produce and house and grow a new human life. Secondly, as I said, they both involve blood. And that is the reason for a new mother's ceremonial uncleanness. If you're wondering if I speak the truth, well, this is made explicitly clear later on in the chapter, in verse 7 of chapter 12. She shall be clean from the flow of her blood. That is the reason for it. And so the reason for her uncleanness is not because she's just given birth to new life. No, it's because what comes with new life in birth is blood. The blood is what causes ceremonial uncleanness and requires her to be ceremonially purified. But that just kicks the problem further down the road, doesn't it? Why blood? I mean, sure, blood is gross, but this would be an extreme way of dealing with it just because it's a bit icky, you know? Earlier this week, uh, Zai was uh, cutting a passion fruit and accidentally nicked his finger. Takes after his dad. I did it with an apple. I still have the scar for it. Thankfully, his was not as deep as mine. And thankfully, it was only just a little bit. But it did, it was enough to cause him to bleed. And naturally, of course, what do you think he did? He cried. That's right. Well, this is a small picture of the reason why blood causes uncleanness. You see, we all know that blood courses through our veins. We all know that behind our layers of skin is about five liters of blood sloshing away in the various parts of our bodies. But we also know that that blood is meant to stay inside our bodies. We instinctively recognize that when it's on the outside, and especially if it comes out of our bodies in a way like that, then something is wrong. Well, that is what is under the surface when it comes to blood being the cause of ceremonial uncleanness. As I pointed out a few weeks ago in an earlier chapter, this is because blood is life. It represents life. Genesis 9, 4, the first time we see this idea is where God tells Noah that he is not to eat flesh with life in it, that is, blood. And Leviticus reiterates this same point later on in chapter 17. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And so blood on the outside of the human body usually indicates that something is wrong, that life has perhaps been taken. In most cases, the fact that someone is bleeding reminds us that there is something not right in the world. 
blood in birth and in menstruation, especially because both are so closely connected with new life. Coming from the womb is also a reminder of that. Part of the curse for Adam and Eve's disobedience that we read about in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. There was a time when childbirth was meant to be painless. But as a result of the fall, it is now a reminder of the curse of sin. Now, I want to be careful here because I don't want to indicate that in a certain sense, blood during childbirth or menstruation are are wrong or, or sinful. No, both now, after the fall, are now a natural part of life. But they point to the fact that this world groans as it seeks to be redeemed by the Lord. Life is in the blood and blood is supposed to remain in the body. And so if you're visiting this morning and you're not a Christian, this is one of the essential pieces of understanding our world today. There is much beauty and life in this creation, in this world, in the people that inhabit it. And that, of course, makes sense. God created the world and he made it good. And in so many ways, it is still good. But it is, good, it is a good creation that has now been marred tainted, corrupted. You know this intuitively, don't you? Every person does. Every worldview and every religion understands this. If you're not a Christian, whatever it is that you currently believe, there is some mechanism or explanation for why this incredible world that we inhabit can also have so much pain and suffering and bloodshed. Well, the Bible tells us that the reason for that is Adam and Eve, the first human beings that God created, sinned by disobeying God's commands and in doing so brought sin into the world. And their sin had a catastrophic effect on all of creation. And so while blood is life, more often than not the shedding or the spilling of blood means death. It is a reminder of the fact that the consequences of our sin is not just mortality. It is not just that we will one day go the way of our ancestors and be buried six feet underground, but also that our sin condemns us before a holy God for eternity. And so the ceremonial uncleanness of a mother who has just given birth to new life or, or of an Israelite who has touched the carcass of an animal, all of these unclean, clean laws point to the fundamentally deeper problem of our unholiness. Sin has made us unfit to come into God's presence. And so we must be washed clean. What we see in the opening verses is that the birthing mother needed to be ceremonially clean in order to participate in the religious life of ancient Israel. Let's read verse 3. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Now, this verse is interesting because it's inserted here not as an instruction to do with the uncleanness of the mother, 
But it's there because this was the standard practice for all Israelite baby boys. It was the sign of the covenant given to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 17. You can look at that in Genesis 17 verses 10 to 12. So this was just standard practice, a sign of the covenant that the Lord had made with Israel. And it's here because at this moment in the, ch- in the chapter, we're speaking specifically about baby boys. That's why that's included. Well, let's see what else the mother is meant to do after being unclean for seven days. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. You notice how this verse indicates to us that it is ceremonial purity that it is the concern here. Kids, can you see there? What is it that she is not supposed to touch while she is unclean? Can you see that in verse 4? Anything that is holy. Thank you, Connor. What else? Come into the sanctuary. That's right. So you notice these are, these are holy objects, things that are ceremonially set apart for God. And while she is in the unclean state, she is not to touch these things. This tells us that these are instructions. They're to do with proper worship in the tabernacle. And so the state of her uncleanness, if she went into the sanctuary, could bring about judgment. And again, as we said last week, remember the context of these chapters. We saw Nadab and Abihu do the wrong thing in bringing their worship to the Lord, and they were consumed by holy fire. So after being unclean for seven days, as in her menstruation, this verse now tells us that she's unclean for a further 33 days. Now, the reason for this is likely because of the symbolism in the numbers. Now, kids, I don't know who likes maths, but who can tell me what 7 plus 33 is? Hey, from the back. 40 is correct. And can anyone think of any other 40s in the Bible? The flood. Was the floodwaters went for 40 days. Any others? Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and he fasted? 40 years. In the wilderness. Yeah, that's right. Israel wandered around in the wilderness. Moses' age when he left Israel. I think that's right. Yeah, I assume that's right. You see, like the number seven in the Bible... The number 40 in the Bible often also has this sense of completeness, of fullness. There is nothing more to do, no more that can be done. So after 40 days of floodwaters, there was no need for more. After 40 days of testing in the wilderness, Jesus' testing was complete. When I turn 40 next year, I will not need to do anything more. It doesn't work that way. But you see, you see what I'm saying? That the symbolism is, is completeness. And so by telling us that the mother was unclean for seven days and then remained unclean for a further 33 days, bringing the total to 40 days, her days of ceremonial uncleanness were complete. And there was no way of speeding this up. So she couldn't wash herself in water to get a reduction in the number of purifying days. I mean, in our world today, I'm sure a birthing mother after giving birth would love just 40 days of nobody coming near her. 
Yeah, she couldn't, she couldn't pay the priest an extra lamb to get her clean more quickly. No, her purification was simply a matter of letting time pass. 40 days and it would be complete. There's an, there's an analogy here to our own lives, isn't there? As Christians, we understand that God has justified us in Christ, which happens in an instant when we turn from sin and put our faith in him. His blood atones for our sin and his righteousness is credited to us. We are counted holy before him by his grace. But sanctification is the part of salvation between that moment of justification and the day when we will meet Christ in glory. It is the here and now. It is the journey from one degree of glory to another. It is the taking of steps back towards the garden, away from the fallen state that we currently inhabit towards the image of God as we were created. And that is a process of time. You cannot speed that up. You cannot buy your way into it. It is a process that we must be patient with. Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit is working in you. You might be impatient with your sin. You might be impatient with other people's sin. But sanctification is a lifelong journey. Now, I'm not telling you to just let go and let God. As good as that slogan is in the right context, it is more often than not used to excuse laziness. No, by all means, grab hold of sanctification with both hands and run. That's what God commands us to do. Fix your eyes on Christ and run to win the race. Run with zeal in your private devotion, in your commitment to the local church, in your commitment to be faithful to the Lord in all that he has commanded. I pray that we would collectively pursue that together. But especially if you find yourself disheartened and discouraged by what might seem to be a lack of progress in your growth. If it seems like you have plateaued or perhaps you've even gone backwards, be patient. His spirit is at work and it is a work that takes time. It is a work that will use up every last second of your biological clock. The process of being made holy begins by faith. It is continued through spirit-empowered growth and it is completed finished when we go to be with Jesus. The new mother had to wait until the 40 days of her purifying were completed. But 40 days was only for a boy. It was different for a girl. Let's read verse 5. But if she bears a female child then she shall be unclean two weeks as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. So with a baby girl, the purification was double the length, 80 days. And the question naturally arises, well, why are the purification days double for a girl? 
Now, in our day, it's common for some people, especially those who reject the Bible as God's word, immediately and to immediately assume that this is because God's uh, sorry that this is because girls are of lesser value than boys. They say, well, they're they're more trouble or something or whatever, and so this is why they've done that, and that's why they need to be purified for longer. Now, it's worth noting that cultures throughout history have treated girls as less valuable. Many cultures today even treat girls this way. But God has never treated girls this way. Never. And it is certainly not what is being said and communicated by the lengthier purification time here. And we know this mainly for three reasons. Firstly, that girls are worth less than boys is not mentioned or even hinted at in the text at all. I challenge you to find it in this verse. Some indication that that is what is being said. It's not there. So to draw that conclusion means you have come to this verse with a set of assumptions that you are already bringing to it. Secondly, we see in verse 6 of chapter 12 that when it comes to bringing offerings, it is the same whether it is for a son or a daughter, indicating that they are equal. And thirdly, the idea that girls are worth less than boys is completely contradicted by the rest of the Bible, most pointedly in Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It has always been the case since the creation of humankind and continues to be the case that men and women, boys and girls, are both made in the image of God. It's not that males have 80% of the image of God and and females only have 20%. No. They are both made in the image of God. And now we are not the same and that is a glorious thing. Men and women reflect different aspects of who God is in unique ways. And we complement each other in life and in our service to our God. So girls... And women, if anybody tries to tell you that the Bible is a misogynistic book that hates women, just point them to Genesis 1.27 and tell them that it's just flatly not true. You are made in the Lord's image. As is every human being on the planet. But that still doesn't answer the question, does it? If that's the case, why the longer time? Well, as we've seen all along in the book of Leviticus, there are a number of things here that probably have cultural explanations that are now lost to us. Things that would have made sense to them, but now we cannot make sense of. And we know what that's like, don't we? So many aspects of our own culture we participate in without knowing anything about the reason why we do it. For example, can you tell me the reason why when someone has a birthday, we make them a cake and put candles on it and then get them to blow it out? Anyone? Especially in our era of COVID, it would make far more sense to not do that. People are you know, far more concerned about germs spreading or whatever. But no, we've got to do it. Why? 
I Googled it but didn't read the answer. I prefer the ignorance. There very well may be a deeper reason for this double length of purification. There may be a cultural reason. There may be something else behind this. Now, the best guess that I've read is that it is perhaps because a baby girl has the potential to become a woman and a mother. And so the double length symbolizes the fact that this girl will one day have to engage in these laws of purification herself. And so that's why she's the, 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 it goes for twice as long. Now, that would be in line with the idea that the numbers signify completeness. But that's still just a guess. I think it's the best guess, but we don't know for sure. Whatever the case, what we see in these first five verses is the necessity for a new mother to be ceremonially purified of the blood of childbirth. And the first step in that is simply waiting 40 or 80 days. And the next step is to bring a couple of offerings. Let's read from verse 6. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter... She shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. So after the days of purification, the mother now brings two offerings to the priest, a lamb for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Now we've seen these offerings before. Burnt offerings, you might remember, I detailed in chapter one of Leviticus, and they served as an offering of atonement as well as an expression of complete devotion. And that's because the whole animal was burnt up. There was nothing saved to be eaten by the priests. The sin offering, which we looked at in chapters 4 and 5, was given for sins that the offerer had committed. When they, you might remember the phrasing, when they have committed a particular sin and they become aware of it, then they are then to bring the offering. Now it's important to recognize that the sin offering was not just given for sin, that is, for disobeying God's law, it was also for ceremonial impurity. I hope I haven't confused you because disobeying ceremonial impurity is sin. But you, you, you see that in uh, Leviticus 5.3 where one of the reasons they need to bring a sin offering was if they touch human uncleanness. Now as I said earlier, because God commanded it was a sin, but there was nothing inherently sinful in touching something unclean. So otherwise, for example, Jesus sinned when he touched the leper in Matthew 8. Of course, he didn't. So given how all the instructions are phrased in chapter 12, it is clear that the purpose of the sin offering that, that, that the mother is meant to give is not because giving birth to a child is somehow disobeying God. No, that's nonsensical and doesn't line up. No, the purpose of the sin offering, as mentioned earlier, was to purify the mother from the uncleanness of the blood. To make her ceremonially clean. Now, I believe I mentioned this in an earlier sermon, but the word atone in the Hebrew can have different emphases depending on the context. So in some cases, especially as we'll see in a few weeks when we reach chapter 16, it can refer to that which covers the sin of someone else before God. 
It is, that is a key definition and key theme in Christian theology. The atonement that we see in Leviticus that cleanses, wash away, washes away sin by the blood of the sacrifice is fulfilled in Christ. But here, because the context of, of both the chapter and the whole Bible uh, tell us that having a baby isn't sinful, it carries the sense of ceremonial purification. And so remember verse 4 told us that her uncleanness means that she cannot touch anything holy or come into the sanctuary. And so the atonement here is, is, the, is to make her ceremonially pure before God. That is what it's expressing, to, to cleanse, to purify her. That is how it atones when the priest offers from uh, the sin offering for her. And so atonement is made, and as verse 7 says, she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. She shall be clean. That's like an exclamation mark on her ceremonial cleansing. It's done, well and truly, from the blood of childbirth. Our passage finishes with the summary that this is the law for purification from childbirth, and yet another gracious provision of God for the poor is found in verse 8. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. And we've seen this with previous offerings where God gives uh, options for the poor in Israel so that they will not be excluded from participating in the worship of God's people. I've spoken about that before, so I won't go into it in great detail. But it's good to highlight once again here, as the text does. There is no one who cannot come to God for forgiveness. There is no one who cannot come before the Lord by his grace and offer up their lives as living sacrifices of worship. That is only more true today in Christ. Your wealth does not disqualify you. It does not qualify you either. As Jesus would say later in his famous Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. It is those who come to him as poor and needy sinners that he delights in showing mercy and forgiveness to. Those who check their pride at the door, who don't consider themselves above others, who recognize that they are in desperate need of mercy. And that is true for all people today. Friends, the good news, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is that he has opened the gates of heaven to all people everywhere. Because he was the one that the old covenant anticipated. He was the one who fulfilled the law and the prophets. He was the one who would crush the head of the serpent. The seed of the woman who would be born of a woman to defeat the enemy. And he was born to parents who faithfully obeyed the very laws that we have just read. Listen to Luke chapter 2 from verse 22. This is speaking of Mary and Joseph. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, 
they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. That's from Exodus. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Did you notice what Mary and Joseph offered for the burnt and the sin offerings at the end there? Two turtle doves and pigeons. You realize that at the end of our chapter in verse 8, that was given as a provision for the poor, because if they weren't poor, then they were to offer up a lamb. So what does that tell us about Jesus' family? They weren't rich. He wasn't born to an earthly king. He was born to the lowest in society as far as wealth goes. And that is why he can be a friend to the poor, to those who are needy. As 2 Corinthians 8, 9 reminds us, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. If you don't know Jesus today, he invites you to receive salvation from sin and its consequences. He invites you to enter the presence of God by receiving his holiness. And he invites you to do so by turning from sin and putting your trust in him. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the one who gave his life as a ransom for many. On a Roman cross, his blood was shed to atone for our sin so that whoever believes in him shall be saved. Would you do that today? Because you see, as we've seen this morning, the blood of childbirth reminds us of the curse, the curse of death, all that has happened to our world since the fall, that there is something not right with it. But it is also, it is also through blood and specifically through the shedding of the blood of Jesus that new life is given. It is only by his blood, his perfect, holy, God DNA blood, that new life is given. See, the blood of Jesus Christ does not just wash away ceremonial uncleanness, but it washes away the stain of sin. Let me finish this morning with the words of Hebrews chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, 
how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It is in Christ and through his blood that he has, we have secured an eternal redemption. Let's pray. Father, we are reminded this morning of the twin truths of the goodness of your world and its fallenness because of sin. We're reminded that the spilling and shedding of blood so often points to death. But we thank you, Lord, that also for the reminder that it is the spilling and shedding of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are not condemned to an eternity of death and judgment, but that in him we have new life, we have eternal life, because he has secured an eternal redemption. May we trust in him and pursue him as you work in us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.